0: This is Reformed Classics, audio productions of classic Reformed works. Today, we're continuing our presentation of John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, translated by Henry Beveridge. Book 1, Chapter 13. The unity of the divine essence in three persons, taught in Scripture from the foundation of the world. Sections. 26. Previous refutations further explained. 27. Reply to certain passages produced from Irenaeus, the meaning of Irenaeus. 28. Reply to certain passages produced from Tertullian, the meaning of Tertullian. And 29. Anti Trinitarians refuted by ancient Christian writers, for example, Justin and Hilary. Objections drawn from writings improperly attributed to Ignatius. Conclusion of the whole discussion concerning the Trinity. Section 26. To the objection that if Christ be properly God, he is improperly called the Son of God, it has been already answered, that when one person is compared with another, the name God is not used indefinitely, but is restricted to the Father regarded as the beginning of the Godhead, not by essentiating, as fanatics absurdly express it, but in respect of order. In this sense are to be understood the words which Christ addressed to the Father. This is life eternal, that they might know thee the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. John 17.3 For speaking in the person of the mediator, he holds a middle place between God and man yet so that his majesty is not diminished thereby. For though he humbled or emptied himself, he did not lose the glory which he had with the Father, though it was concealed from the world. So in the epistle to the Hebrews, Hebrews 1.10 and 2.9, though the apostle confesses that Christ was made a little lower than the angels, he at the same time hesitates not to assert that he is the eternal God who founded the earth. We must hold, therefore, that as often as Christ in the character of Mediator addresses the Father, He, under the term God, includes His own divinity also. Thus, when He says to the apostles, It is expedient for you that I go away. My Father is greater than I. He does not attribute to Himself a secondary divinity merely, as if in regard to eternal essence He were inferior to the Father. But having obtained celestial glory, he gathers together the faithful to share it with Him. He places the Father in the higher degree, inasmuch as the full perfection of brightness conspicuous in heaven differs from that measure of glory which He Himself displayed when clothed in flesh. For the same reason, Paul says that Christ will restore the kingdom to God, even the Father, that God may be all in all, 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-four and 28. Nothing can be more absurd than to deny the perpetuity of Christ's divinity. But if he will never cease to be the Son of God, but will ever remain the same that he was from the beginning, it follows that under the name of Father, the one divine essence common to both is comprehended. And assuredly Christ descended to us for the very purpose of raising us to the Father, and thereby, at the same time, raising us to himself, inasmuch as he is one with the Father. It is therefore erroneous and impious to confine the name of God to the Father, so as to deny it to the Son. Accordingly, John, declaring that he is the true God, has no idea of placing him beneath the Father in a subordinate rank of divinity. I wonder what these fabricators of new gods mean when they confess that Christ is truly God and yet exclude him from the Godhead of the Father, as if there could be any true God but the one God, or as if transfused divinity were not a mere modern fiction. Section 27 In the many passages which they collect from Irenaeus, in which he maintains that the Father of Christ is the only eternal God of Israel, They betray shameful ignorance or very great dishonesty. For they ought to have observed that that holy man was contending against certain frantic persons, who, denying that the Father of Christ was that God, who had in old times spoken by Moses and the prophets, held that he was some phantom or other produced from the pollution of the world. His whole object, therefore, is to make it plain, that in the Scriptures no other God is announced but the Father of Christ, that it is wicked to imagine any other. Accordingly, there is nothing strange in his so often concluding that the God of Israel was no other than he who is celebrated by Christ and the apostles. Now, when a different heresy is to be resisted, we also say with truth that the God who in old times appeared to the fathers was no other than Christ. Moreover, if it is objected that he was the Father, we have the answer ready, that while we contend for the divinity of the Son, we by no means exclude the Father. When the reader attends to the purpose of Irenaeus, the dispute is at an end. Indeed, we have only to look to Lib 3c6, where the pious writer insists on this one point, that he who in Scripture is called God absolutely and indefinitely is truly the only God, and that Christ is called God absolutely. Let us remember, as appears from the whole work and especially from Library 2C46, that the point under discussion was that the name of Father is not applied enigmatically and parabolically to one who is not truly God. We may add that in Lib 3C9, he contends that the Son as well as the Father united was the God proclaimed by the prophets and apostles. He afterwards explains how Christ, who is Lord of all, and King and Judge, received power from Him who is God of all, namely, in respect of the humiliation by which He humbled Himself, even to the death of the cross. At the same time, He shortly after affirms that the Son is the Maker of heaven and earth, who delivered the law by the hand of Moses, and appears to the Father's. Should any babbler now insist that according to Irenaeus, the Father alone is the God of Israel, I will refer him to a passage in which Irenaeus distinctly says that Christ is ever one and the same, and also applies to Christ the words of the prophecy of Habakkuk, God cometh from the south. To the same effect, he says, therefore Christ himself with the Father is the God of the living And in the twelfth chapter of the same book, he explains that Abraham believed God because Christ is the maker of heaven and earth and very God. Section 28. With no more truth do they claim Tertullian as a patron. Though his style is sometimes rugged and obscure, he delivers the doctrine which we maintain in no ambiguous manner. Namely, that while there is one God, his word, however, is with dispensation or economy. That there is only one God in unity of substance. But that, nevertheless, by the mystery of dispensation, the unity is arranged into trinity. That there are three, not in state, but in degree, not in substance, but in form, not in power, but in order. He says, indeed, that he holds the Son to be second to the Father but he means that the only difference is by distinction. In one place he says the Son is visible, but after he has discoursed on both views, he declares that he is invisible regarded as the Word. In fine, by affirming that the Father is characterized by his own person, he shows that he is very far from countenancing the fiction which we refute, and although he does not acknowledge any other God than the Father, Yet explaining himself in the immediate context, he shows that he does not speak exclusively in respect of the Son, because he denies that he is a different God from the Father, and accordingly, that the one supremacy is not violated by the distinction of person. And it is easy to collect his meaning from the whole tenor of his discourse, for he contends against Praxius, that although God has three distinct persons, yet there are not several gods nor is unity divided. According to the fiction of Praxius, Christ could not be God without being the Father also. And this is the reason why Tertullian dwells so much on the distinction. When he calls the word and spirit a portion of the whole, the expression, though harsh, may be allowed, since it does not refer to the substance, but only, as Tertullian himself testifies, denotes arrangement and economy which applies to the persons only. Accordingly, he asks, How many persons, Praxeus, do you think there are? But just as many as there are names for. In the same way, he shortly after says, That they may believe the Father and the Son, each in his own name and person. These things, I think, sufficiently refute the effrontery of those who endeavor to blind the simple by pretending the authority of Tertullian. Section 29. Assuredly, whosoever will compare the writings of the ancient fathers with each other will not find anything in Irenaeus different from what is taught by those who come after him. Justin is one of the most ancient, and he agrees with us out and out. Let them object that, by him and others, the Father of Christ is called the one God. The same thing is taught by Hilary, who uses the still harsher expression that eternity is in the Father. Is it that he may withhold divine essence from the Son? His whole work is a defense of the doctrine which we maintain, and yet these men are not ashamed to produce some kind of mutilated excerpts for the purpose of persuading us that Hilary is a patron of their heresy. With regard to what they pretend as to Ignatius, if they would have it to be of the least importance, let them prove that the apostles enacted laws concerning Lent and other corruptions. Nothing can be more nauseating than the absurdities which have been published under the name of Ignatius, and therefore the conduct of those who provide themselves with such masks for deception is the less entitled to toleration. Moreover, the consent of the ancient fathers clearly appears from this, that in the Council of Nice no attempt was made by Arius to cloak his heresy by the authority of any approved author, and no Greek or Latin writer apologizes as dissenting from his predecessors. It cannot be necessary to observe how carefully Augustine, to whom all these miscreants are most violently opposed, examined all ancient writings, and how reverently he embraced the doctrine taught by them. He is most scrupulous in stating the grounds on which he is forced to differ from them, even in the minutest point. On this subject, too, if he finds anything ambiguous or obscure in other writers, he does not disguise it, and he assumes it as an acknowledged fact, that the doctrine opposed by the Arians was received without dispute from the earliest antiquity. At the same time, he was not ignorant of what some others had previously taught. This is obvious from a single expression, when he says that unity is in the Father. Will they pretend that he then forgot himself? In another passage, he clears away every such charge when he calls the Father the beginning of the Godhead, as being from none, thus wisely inferring that the name of God is especially ascribed to the Father, because unless the beginning were from him, the simple unity of essence could not be maintained. I hope the pious reader will admit that I have now disposed of all the calumnies by which Satan has hitherto attempted to pervert or obscure the pure doctrines of faith. The whole substance of the doctrine has, I trust, been faithfully expounded, if my readers will set bounds to their curiosity, and not long more eagerly than they ought for perplexing disputation. I did not undertake to satisfy those who delight in speculate views, but I have not designedly omitted anything which I thought adverse to me. At the same time, studying the edification of the church, I have thought it better not to touch on various topics, which could have yielded little profit, while they must have needlessly burdened and fatigued the reader. For instance, what avails it to discuss, as Lombard does in length, whether or not the father always generates? This idea of continual generation becomes an absurd fiction, from the moment it is seen that from eternity there were three persons in one God.